0: of the Barry Commoner Center for Health and the Environment at Queens College. She's also a physician and public health researcher. Sean Petty, who you may have seen on Democracy Now uh, uh, earlier this week, is a registered nurse in the pediatric emergency room at a public hospital in the Bronx. He also serves on the board of directors of the New York State Nurses Association. Uh, Dennis Kasuth is a socialist and rank and file union activist for over two decades and has been a registered nurse for 13 years. Um, They're currently an active member of the Chicago Teachers Union and National Nurses United. Uh, And Jessica Hanson-Weaver is a clinical social worker at the University of California, San Francisco, and she has been a socialist activist for over a decade in the Bay Area, and recently joined the DSA San Francisco chapter. So we really have so much knowledge in those speakers and so much knowledge with all of you on the phone. Um, So without further ado, I'm going to use my powers to unmute David McNally. David, can we hear you? (laughs) Great. Um, So go ahead and uh, take it away.
1: Okay. Well, thanks to Emma. Thank you to all the sponsors. It's hugely important that we be doing events like this right now. Many of you know that I'm someone who has avoided using the D word depression. Uh, even around 2008 and 9, I felt that comparisons to the 1930s were not always appropriate, even when we're looking at a huge global crisis. And so I I called 2008-9 a global slump, uh, but did not use the D word. Well, now radicals like myself are being completely bypassed in the mainstream. The Washington Post ran an article yesterday in which a mainstream economist used. The word depression. The Guardian has a similar article today. There is a growing recognition that this is a massive contraction in the global system and I just want to really share with you a few thoughts and observations about that. The downturn of 2008-9 was the fourth great contraction in the history of capitalism and by that I mean a period of a decade to three decades of stagnation, slump, recurring recessions, and so on. So the first one came at the end of the 19th century, 1873 to 96, and that was the original Great Depression. Then we had the catastrophic slump of the 1930s. We then had the decade-long crisis, 1971 to 82 and we entered the fourth great contraction in 2008-9. But that one looked and felt different in all kinds of ways because central banks around the world intervened massively to prevent a collapse of the banking system. In the United States, they pumped something between 19 trillion and $29 trillion into the financial system to rescue the banks unprecedented, and it did prevent a 1930s style crash with 25% unemployment and so on. The problem is, it also meant that capitalism couldn't destructively restructure itself. And that's because by pumping trillions into the financial system, by pushing interest rates down effectively to zero, it meant that companies that were in essence bankrupt could stay alive with free money. And that's why you've heard recurrently over the last decade, the term zombie firms. Because there were companies that were completely inefficient and unprofitable in capitalist terms who could keep borrowing money for free to stay alive. Estimates are that 16% of all the firms in the United States are zombie firms. They're on life support. Through the Federal Reserve Bank. Well, what that meant is that we got a so-called recovery from 2010 on with almost no growth. Growth rates were a quarter to a half of what you'd normally expect in a recovery. Very low investment and no recovery in wages and living standards. We got the so-called low growth recovery, the precarious worker recovery, uh, and so on. And that was, even that pathetic little recovery was coming to a halt in 2016, as profits started to collapse, when it was rescued by Trump's huge tax cuts to US businesses. And that essentially bought the system two years. But by the fall of last year, by the fall of 2019, a new recession had started and it's important to emphasize this the recession did not begin with the pandemic in october of last year industrial production in china dropped 20 percent we went through nine straight months in which business investment was declining the canadian economy saw job loss in both October and November of last year. And as early as September, and I wanna underline this, as early as September of last year, the Federal Reserve began to intervene in financial markets because it could see they were going into crisis. So I give you all of that to emphasize that the second recession in the slump that started in 2008 had already begun And that's the point at which it was hit by two huge shocks. The first was an oil shock. And it's important to emphasize this, although the pandemic had started in China, it was not rattling markets in the West. They did not see this as a threat to anything more than China's growth for a short period of time, but the pandemic and the downturn in China was putting a big dent into demand for oil. Saudi Arabia then called on oil producers to cut output in order to prevent prices from dropping. But as happens in a period of recession, rivalries intensify and Russia refused to go along with the Saudi price cut. At which point the Saudis said, fine, we know how to play this game better than anyone else. We will flood the market with the cheapest oil on the planet because the production costs in Saudi Arabia are lower than China, Venezuela, the United States, Canada, etc." And so the Saudis started in January to flood the market, and they did it more as we moved into February. That's when oil stock panic triggered the stock market crash. Stocks started absolutely plummeting at that point. Then the reality of the pandemic hit. And so what we had was a recessionary economy now experiencing an oil price war, which was hugely destabilizing. And then you get that overlaying with a pandemic a reminder to everybody, the pandemic itself grows out of capitalist contradictions. And I want to emphasize again, the importance of the work of people like Mike Davis and in particular, Rob Wallace, and his book, Big Farms Make Big Flu. This is a capitalist pandemic and it's manifesting itself in that way across the board. Now, what does it mean? for us it means that a pretty severe slump is now hugely magnified goldman sachs says that output in the united states is going to drop by 24 that may be optimistic the stock market is already down 25 percent and it's going to fall more as most of you know job loss in two weeks in the u.s official job loss if you could actually get through and record your unemployment which has been 10 million, and that's gonna rise again next week. Probably over 20 million in a four week period is what we're looking at. In addition, keep in mind that unlike any other crisis in the history of capitalism, the Federal Reserve and other central banks started bailouts before any banks collapsed. In 2008, they were already going down. Some of them, like Bear Stearns, had already folded up shop before the Fed started any intervention. This time they realized what was, how bad this was gonna be, or at least had some intimation, and they started the bailouts in advance. Nevertheless, that simply stopped the stock market collapse for four days. A $2 trillion fiscal rescue package gave them four day reprieve in the stock markets. And not surprisingly, yesterday an economist at Bloomberg came out with an article headlined, it turns out two trillion in stimulus isn't nearly enough stimulus. So they've pumped probably six trillion into financial markets. They've put $2 trillion stimulus package out there, and it's not working. That's why all the talk of a so-called V-shaped recession, you go down really fast and you bounce back really fast, is nonsense. This is going to be deep and prolonged, even though it's going to have waves and cycles within it. It's going to look like the beginnings of faulting faulting recoveries, then they'll get short-circuited and so on. So let me give you a few thoughts about where we go from here it's, it's gonna be a crisis across the board. The United States is getting hit harder because they, the US healthcare system and its government responded so ineffectively to the outburst of the pandemic. But it's a huge threat to China's growth model, which is export driven. Who are they gonna to export to in a slump like this? but also we need to bring into the story how catastrophic this is going to be throughout the global slump. Uh, sorry, throughout the global South because this is something that doesn't have enough attention. Prior to this crisis, there were 48 nations on the planet spending more on debt relief, debt repayments than on healthcare. Okay. 48 countries. If you take, a nation that is about to get devastated, Haiti. Haiti has 11 million people and something between 30 and 120 intensive care unit beds. Haiti has 64 ventilators for 11 million people and the odds are that half of them don't work. Predictions from within Haiti are that 800,000 may die through this pandemic. And so we've got to globalize our understanding. There are countries that were broke before this hit, Zambia, Ecuador, Lebanon. Some of you may have read the reports of bodies in the streets for days in Ecuador that are not even being retrieved at this point. And then of course, we've got all the dimensions of racial inequality in the way New York for instance, is being hit by the pandemic. And so I want to really end with two kind of broad stroke points, which I hope will frame and set up some of the uh, presentations which are coming. This is overwhelming to all of us. It's also the case that as someone who has been a Marxist since I was a teenager, I honestly feel like it is the biggest affirmation of radical socialist politics in my lifetime, that everything we have said about the nature of capitalism and what it does to working class people around the globe is being affirmed in a a frightening way, but also one which tells us how important our analysis, our politics and our organizing is. It's probably never been the case that the simple slogan capitalism versus life is literally resonating with huge numbers of people whether you're talking about health care whether you're talking about housing income protection emptying the jails migrant rights global debt relief because that's what we have to be calling for a global debt jubilee free wi-fi listen wages for housework resonates right now as a demand. That's right, pay people for the labor they do at home, Uh, and so on. None of this stuff, which sounded marginal two months ago, doesn't resonate today with millions of people. And so, yeah, it's overwhelming, but it's also overwhelming in the sense that we've probably never been more right in our basic convictions. And so now what we have to do is figure out what it means to operationalize all that.
0: Thank you David. Um, okay, next we're going to hear from Sherry. Sherry, I'm going to unmute you. Hello.
2: Great. Can you hear me?
0: We can hear you.
2: Okay, great. So um, I uh, I have some slides that I'm going to uh, use for my talk. So you can go to the next slide. Um, uh, I'd like to thank the uh, organizers of this. It's really uh, an honor to be on a panel that um, brings together so many perspectives. And unfortunately, I don't think the words I'm going to give are going to be any more encouraging about the state of the situation than David's were. But what I'm going to do is start with a quick review of the epidemiology of the epidemic. Um, COVID-19 is caused by a new virus that initially lived in bats and jumped to humans. It's incredibly contagious and no one has previous immunity. Next slide. Um, When someone is infected by the virus, it reproduces inside them and then is spread to others through droplets that get into the air when an infected person coughs or sneezes, or when an infected person without symptoms breathes or speaks. The droplets fall onto surfaces where the virus can live for hours or days. Then when we touch those surfaces and touch our face, the virus enters our body and begins the infectious process again. The virus is so deadly because it has an affinity for one of the enzymes in our lungs. And in some people, their bodies produce large quantities of fluids to fight the infection, which leads them to essentially drown in their own fluids. The only way to save patients at this stage is through ventilators and high levels of oxygen that requires hospitalization. Next slide. The pandemic has spread rapidly through the world. As of yesterday, there was more than a million cases and 54,000 deaths worldwide, and at least 6,000 deaths in the United States. Um, This is probably an underestimate of the actual number of cases since many, many cases and probably deaths don't even get counted. Next. Um, Every state in the US, next slide. Um, Every state in the US is affected. Sorry, uh, the one before that. Um, Every state in the US is affected with large urban areas having especially high rates of infection. New York is the hardest hit state with over 100,000 cases and about 3,000 deaths. There's been an alarming 1,500 deaths just in the last three days. Next slide. Um, The graph on the left shows you that all ages are getting the disease. But as you see on the graph on the right, it's mainly older individuals and those with underlying diseases who are developing the worst lung disease and therefore dying. Next slide. There's no cure, and the virus is incredibly infectious. So the only protective recommendation has been the public health measures that we're all familiar with. You see them here, and I hope you're following them. Social distancing or staying six feet away from anyone and limiting contact is the recommendation having the most profound but hopefully biggest effect. Next slide. The concept of social distancing came from a study which looked at the 1918 flu epidemic in the US and found that those cities that closed down earlier in the epidemic had fewer deaths. The goal of social distancing is not to necessarily reduce the total number of cases, but to flatten the curve so we don't overwhelm the healthcare system. Next slide. It is clear now that the US responded way too late and with too few controls and the devastating results are apparent. This graph shows the rapid increase in cases in the US compared to the rest of the other major countries that have been affected. Next slide. This model looks specifically at New York and shows how our lack of preparedness has already overwhelmed our healthcare system. The top dotted line shows the rapid climb in the number of hospitalized cases. And this increase is projected to peak on April 9th in New York. The horizontal purple line shows the total number of hospital beds before the pandemic began. And the green and the blue dotted lines below the horizontal line show the number of intensive care beds and ventilators we will need. About a quarter of patients in the hospital with COVID-19 have needed an intensive care bed. Next slide. The deaths are projected to continue to climb climb until May 9th, And at that time, we may have more than 15,000 deaths in New York, which is five times the deaths we've already seen. So what went wrong, and why were we so unprepared? Next slide. This scenario was not inevitable. There's substantial science demonstrating how to successfully stop the spread of infectious diseases early on. This graph developed years ago by CDC scientists showed that the most important thing is to identify cases of the disease early on through aggressive screening and then to isolate cases so they don't infect others. This approach has been successful in containing the spread of COVID in other countries like South Korea and Singapore. But if you pass the containment phase, you're left where we are now with trying unsuccessfully to mitigate an unfolding disaster. Next slide. The scientists inside the government were well aware of this. In 2018 and 19, there were high level exercises done with mock pandemics that looked identical to what we're going through now. These exercises showed that the federal government had not invested the resources in developing systems like a national stockpile of protective equipment and ventilators and did not have a coordinated national system of response. But the government ignored these recommendations and chose to rely on private corporations rather than a strong public health system. The result has been a criminally slow system of producing the test kits which might have contained the disease, even though they already existed in other countries. And corporations like 3M have been unable to supply the protective equipment needed to keep frontline healthcare workers safe. For decades, healthcare workers have been paying the price of a system that does not prioritize their protection. And as a result, they have some of the highest rates of work-related injuries and illnesses. This crisis has made the disregard for healthcare workers clear to the broader public. Next slide. Rather than a strong and coordinated federal response, we have seen the same narcissistic and inadequate response out of the Trump administration. He sent the Trump COVID action plan to every home months after it might have had an impact. Next slide. He cared more about the photo opportunity in front of the Navy ship that came to New York City than actually having the ship help the crisis. Because of poor planning, five days after arrival, only 20 patients were hospitalized on the ship. On the same period, more than 1,500 patients died in understaffed hospitals. Next slide. Other leaders from both parties were also to blame. While Governor Cuomo is being portrayed as the crusading leader in this crisis, part of the blame for the hospital's lack of capacity to respond in New York City comes from Cuomo, who systematically underfunded the medical infrastructure. Before this crisis, New York State had one of the lowest ratios of hospital beds in proportion to the population it serves. This crisis will provide us with new opportunities to argue for why a national publicly funded healthcare system might have allowed us to respond better. Next slide. The other aspect of this crisis I wanna briefly address is how social class differences have become clear predictors of who lives and who dies in this pandemic. This map shows the pattern of cases in New York City. The purple zip codes have the highest rates of cases and our communities that are disproportionately poor, immigrant, and communities of color. Meanwhile, white communities in New York City have received the highest number of screening tests, yet also have the lowest rate of positive COVID test results. Next slide. Why is it that poor, immigrant, and communities of color are at greater risk of getting sick or dying from COVID-19? Long-term structural inequalities, like those listed here, mean that they have the highest rates of underlying diseases, and this places them at risk for dying from COVID. But also, these same structural inequalities have made it harder for some communities to follow social distancing, increasing their risk for being infected. Next slide. This graph shows data from cell phones. The further line falls below the horizontal line, the less people are traveling away from their home. It demonstrates that those in the lowest income group, the orange line, were able to start social distancing about three days later than those with higher incomes. Next slide. One of the reasons that low income communities were less able to social distance is that many are considered essential workers or if not essential workers, they were the ones who couldn't work at home and continued to work for as long as they could. In this graph, those occupations further to the right require workers to be in close proximity to other people. The dark reddish circles are low-income jobs. The bigger the circle, the more workers employed in those jobs. We can see here that the large number of workers like cashiers, warehouse workers, childcare workers, and home care workers, Um, many of them were workers that continued to work as essential workers. Next slide. Never in my lifetime have I seen such a broad awareness and appreciation for the essential role that workers play in our survival. They will become even more important as workers begin to return to work, and it becomes clear which workers have the privilege of maintaining social distance and which, which don't. I really like this quote that appeared in a Slate article that sums it up. In the simplest calculation, there are only two classes of people, those who might get hurt or killed on the job and those who don't. Next slide. So I'll close by saying that the health effects from this crisis are gonna be with us for a long time. The mental health impacts, both from the trauma of the crisis and the long-term economic impacts will be enormous how we as a society organize and respond will determine our future. And I know that the speakers after me have a lot more to say about what we can do in response. Thanks. Thank you,
0: Sherry. Um, We're gonna go now to uh, Sean Petty, Pediatric RN in the Bronx, and uh, I've unmuted you, Sean.
3: Thanks. Go ahead. Yeah, so, Right. I mean, obviously, I think as, as David sort of kicked us off uh, by, by elaborating, I think, you know, we're marching right into, you know, a, you know, world historic moment. Um, and, you know, per, um, you know, predicated by, I think, what can easily be called a, the, you know, a world historic failure of the largest and strongest capitalist economy. Um To do really anything um, to uh, approaching the what are the well known ABCs of of fighting uh, a virus of this of this um, virulence and and of this magnitude um, and I think this this widely understood fact and this widely understood comparison i mean we we already have you know, we we had examples and images and very clear cut science uh, coming out of places like China and South Korea and Hong Kong and Singapore uh, about how to do this right or how to do this effectively. Um, And so we had going into this um, as healthcare workers and as regular uh, people uh, watching this unfold had a basis for comparison already about what could have been done and what wasn't. Um, and I think that ver- the virtue of that fact that we were, were the richest economy in the world, and we couldn't figure that out, um, I think just opens up massive uh, political um, implications and, and questions for people, uh, has massive implications and, and opens up questions for people Um, and, um, I think creates an unprecedented political moment, uh, for us, um, in terms of, in terms of our organizing and our strategies, um, how these questions get interpreted, um, and how they get turned into political action is really the key task for the socialist movement right now. Um, because as we, we well, are well aware, you know, there will be other explanations and distractions and scapegoating waiting in the wings, both by the current um, uh, establishment debate uh, around it, um, and also by uh, more nefarious forces of the far right. Um, so, you know, in this moment, I think we need to really figure out how to strike the right balance. Um, as a socialist movement of intervening into this moment with our, you know, concrete but but large in scale, big picture political conclusions and, and articulating those for people. Like I think David really succinctly summed up, people are literally understanding um, and crystallizing this idea that it's capitalism versus their lives. Um, and, and reinforcing that, elaborating on that, making the connections uh, politically and otherwise, um, and balancing that task with the task of developing, uh, drilled down, specific and effective concrete strategies for organizing and fighting for what we need in the here and now. Um, so, uh, and then just to say, I think, you know it hasn't been mentioned yet, but I think in the last week, um, what we 've really seen is a significant turn from the initial shock, the initial grappling with the social isolation, grappling with the incapacitation of dealing with this crisis and uh, and, and dealing with the social distancing measures, etc, and a turn towards figuring out how to um, organize and, and organize publicly, organize on the job um, and we're seeing. You know many strike waves you know strike ripples you might want to call them um in essential services in the private sector and and of course you know i was a part of you know organizing actions and and um and others around the country around uh doing that on the healthcare front um in terms of you know politicizing what our critical needs are um, so just to take a brief, hopefully a brief, you know, couple minutes to talk about how the failures that kind of building on uh, what Sherry was talking about, how the, how the failures um, of this moment relate to the healthcare sector. Um, I think you can break it down into four main categories. Um, you can, uh, the first and foremost was the failure around widespread testing. Um, the, the CDC and um, the FDA and, uh, and the Trump administration overall completely fell in their face in terms of figuring out how to develop a, a, a basic test to uh, both uh, to create and, and, and develop on the scale necessary to do what South Korea was able to do, what China was able to do later on, which is test what was necessary here in the hundreds of thousands uh, right away. So that was, that was the key initial failure. Um, of course, the, the big fight that I'm been and uh, that I've been involved in is around n 95 masks and other personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. This is knowing this is, and this is being widely understood among healthcare workers. This is going to kill us in, in an unprecedented way. It's going to, to sicken us and, and incapacitate the healthcare system in an unprecedented way, and it's a hugely radicalizing factor for healthcare workers. Um, and then some of the um, particular, uh, the third would be, I think the 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 object failure in the the system as a whole to have any ability to centralize information. And, and resource allocation uh, in this crisis, in terms of hospital capacity, uh, in terms of information, in terms of getting things from where they are right now and to where they need to be. Um, and then there's you know, what Sherry also began to touch on, which is the actual physical hospital capacities um, and actual physical equipment that exists to be able to deal with the curve. Um, the number of beds, the number of ICU beds, the number of ventilators, which is often talked about, and the number of staff, um, and all of that being conditioned um, by uh, the the um, the, the health the the financial priorities of of the healthcare system in the last couple decades, in particular. Um, so, I think you know, layered upon that you know, in terms of the structural component and the, the specific failings, the, the public health failings and the structural components of our system, then you have the layered in other elements of inequality under capitalism that again, Sherry touched on homelessness, uh, mass incarceration, undocumented immigrants not having access to health care, housing crisis, and, and the general racialized apartheid system that we have in healthcare in this country. I'll give a shout out to Kianga's article in um, the New Yorker for for putting those putting those things together in a really brilliant piece. Um, so I think you know I'm not going to go too deeply into all of those areas. I think there's lots to read about them. I, I put some resources um, uh, up. Um, I'm not sure how it works on the Zoom call, but um, there's there's some more reading to be done. Um, but obviously some of the key features are you know the you know with the ppe it's the collapse in the global supply chain uh china produces 95% of n95 masks trump failed 2 months ago to um invoke the defense production act to domestically scale up n95 mask and other ppp production um the CDC, a key moment was a key recognition of this, and the key thing that it killed healthcare workers and is going to kill way more healthcare workers is the CDC changing their guidelines from COVID-19 being a airborne and drop, airborne and contact um, uh, precaution disease to a droplet precaution disease, and that then gives gave license to health departments and hospitals to overnight in a widespread way change their recommendations and their ppe preparations so you don't so what that meant for us in practice is that the n95 mask was no longer uh required or necessary to have with every patient interaction we can we the hospitals allowed were then allowed to only give surgical masks to healthcare workers uh and a scaled down version of ppe to treat this um to treat this virus, and that, in and of itself, was the basis for widespread healthcare worker contamination. Um, so that um, so th- that's a huge thing that we're fighting um, is the is the CDC guidelines and the Defense Production Act uh, capacity. Sherry touched on Cuomo. Um, There's lots to read about it. There's a really good Nation article um, uh, that touches on it. Um, Just to put a fine point on it, not only has there been two decades of systematic hospital closure where we've lost 20,000 beds in New York State alone, um, and obviously that's compared to needing to triple the amount of beds we need to deal with this crisis. Um, So, you know, we're already starting 20,000 beds behind and we need a total of, of about a hundred to 150,000 beds to deal with the crisis. Um, it, um, the, the, sorry. Um, I think that Cuomo is has the gumption uh, and from a capitalist perspective. He has the foresight, but from a working class perspective, he has the, the gumption to cut 2.5. Billion million dollars. Sorry, billion dollars from Medicaid in the middle of this crisis. So the contradictions that this is exposing, for people uh, uh, and how both parties are dealing with this, uh, I think are are fairly profound. Um, having you know, no national health care system. I mean, I think that's a pretty obvious one. Um, to be able to to. To produce to distribute to co- to collate information, I think had had profound implications. I think all of the other countries that did were able to deal with this uh, in a much better way, even the countries that really also failed like Italy um, and the uk um, uh, etc but I think that the fact that we had we have such a hodgepodge system you know you can see in you know, Cuomo and de Blasio's response, they're dealing with seven layers of public hospitals versus private hospitals. You know, he has to go around. I mean, we're at the point now where even a neoliberal like Cuomo is sending the the New York State's National Guard to private businesses to collect N95 masks and PPE and to commandeer equipment because they had no mechanism for for collecting those resources for the last couple months. Um, so uh, those, are, those are things I think we, we need to be pointing out um, and drawing conclusions around. Um, so I think that overall there's some key, I mean, so combined the, the decades of neoliberal healthcare restructuring um, combined with the, the specific Trump-led incompetency and incompetence, and and um, and just profound callous uh, towards the the lives of of working people, is going to lead to you know upwards of um, you know a quarter of a million people um, uh, dying from this uh, overall. That that's the potential for this. Uh, By the time this is said and done. And there, there of course, could be mitigating factors, but we're talking about, um, along with the economic implications, again, we all know an unprecedented crisis. Um, So I think that, you know, shifting gears, you know, what this means for our political and strategic conclusions. I mean, what it meant for me when I was trying to figure out how to navigate this terrain and what I was going through as a healthcare worker and our my coworkers were, I mean, what I noticed sort of at the micro level was these political ideas and this visceral anger, visceral fear, um, and the developing political consciousness was developing at such a rapid pace, more rapid than I've ever seen before. So uh, I think you know, some of us recognize that this, you know, what could be the basis for, you know, developing some unprecedented, developing some actions that we wouldn't have thought previously possible. Um, so that's in a time when the pressure to socially distance and the pressure to stay away from the public eye was so severe, but that pressure was rubbing right up against and at loggerheads with the need to politically act, the need to actually speak out. And so um, that you know compelled us, compelled me and, and my close collaborators in my union, namely uh, Kelly Cabrera, another one of my nurses that I've worked closely with, to really reach out and say, we need to do something. Let's do this right, let's do this safe, let's figure it out within the union, whatever we can do, but let's not wait, let's get this done. Um, And so, you know, we built in 48 hours, a very modest action with very modest um, uh, expectations. Um, We said, if we could get a couple dozen people, maybe a couple of news cameras will come. We can at least break the ice. We can at least, um, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, allow other people to feel like this thing is possible. and, and we can, you know, reach, we can reach, the message can reach this, the, the idea that this specific thing around the N95 mask and, and, the, and the dire needs are, 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 really, are really out there and it because it hadn't broken through at that level. And we were sort of blown away. We were blown away by how quickly people wanted to be a part of it, how quickly, um, and how quickly there was an echo chamber within the mainstream media. So um, we got more press, I think, from a single action than any action in the history of our union. Uh, we were on n- all the local news stations and national news stations um, throughout that day and throughout that weekend. Um, we were then on the front page of one of the New York, York tablets, the New York Daily News, and the following week, we were deluged with press calls all week long and from international sources. Um, BBC, you know, Al Jazeera, um, the full nine and then, and then, um, culminating actually in this week, this weekend, uh, Kelly's going to be on 60 minutes along with another doctor from Jacoby. So, um, it's, uh, it's, it worked (laughs) is the short answer or is the short conclusion. And it also spurred other action. So it gave confidence to other people in the union and gave confidence to the union that this was something that could be realized without um without risking everything uh politically um so um we were very you know happy with the results but obviously the lesson for us and for i think for the socialist movement is that public action is possible people are very ready eyes are on frontline workers um media access is unprecedented um but also, the lesson for us is that it 's not enough. I mean, we did get responses from our hospital system you know that were both good and bad. We got responses from De Blasio and Cuomo that were both good and bad, and we got even uh, the trump administration 's um, attention him having invoked in a very nationalistic way the uh, the defense production act around n ninety five mass for the first time so there 's way more to fight for around that. but the fact that we got we helped get federal action, you know, from the Trump administration is, I think, significant. Um, so just to wrap up, um, I think, you know, our method has to be, we aim nationally and then apply locally. We need to expect unprecedented urgency and boldness amongst the people that are around us, but we can't leap ahead of, of the people around us um, at the same time. And we have to bring people with us. And then I think finally we have to be political. We have to draw these big picture political conclusions as we're organizing with people and draw out the political lessons, um, both historically and what people are experiencing right now. And then I think a few key around that are healthcare specific demands. I think reversing the CDC guidelines um, uh, around uh, around COVID nineteen they need to they need to protect. They need to advise hospitals to go back to airborne and contact precautions. Um, we need the Defense Production Act to mobilize around production, um, not just what they're doing now, which is basically starting a trade war between Canada and Latin America by, you know, curtailing exports. That's what Trump did last week. Um, but we need to we need to fight for the Defense Production Act to be aimed at production, not just distribution. Um, we need to organize, we can fight for reorganizing employment around the public health response, uh, given the mass unemployment crisis that's brewing, and then of course Medicare for all. I think we can be looking at national actions, national marches on Medicare for all, um, and even going beyond Medicare for all and arguing, as did they did in Spain, for nationalization of certain aspects of the healthcare system. So I think that there, those are all on the table. Um, we need to start where we're at. Uh, we need to, you know, um, you know, uh, but, but so many different things are possible. Healthcare workers have the most leverage politically and organizationally right now. Um, we need to get creative about how we're involved in the community under social distancing. Um, and I think we need to broaden our demands to unite with other sectors who are uh, involved in these strike waves and these strike ripples around the country. Um, a little can go a long way. Um, political projection of ideas, building organization, um, is just as important as organizing around demands. And, and the, the art of our politics right now is going get, to be getting that balance
2: right.
0: Thank you so much, Sean. Um, we're going to go now to Dennis. And before uh, we hear from them, I just want to drop a link for a Google form in the chat. Uh, please fill us out. It's going to help us find out what kind of COVID-19 organizing is going on already, and uh, Mark, if you're interested in getting involved, there's a lot of efforts on, on, underway. Many are locally based, um, and it would be helpful to knit together some of this as we're all urgently trying to figure out um, next steps. So I'm going to drop that in the chat now, and then Dennis, why don't you go ahead.
4: Okay yeah I mean this is um, an uncontroversial statement I think to this audience but the history of racism in this country is as long as it is outrageous. Um, This was a country that was founded upon stolen land from indigenous people and built with the enslaved labor of African people. It is embroidered into the very fabric of this country. Um, To use a healthcare analogy it is not some diseased limb that we could just simply cut away and be done with. Removing racism from our society will take deep and deliberate work. It does not surprise any of us on this call that the crisis which befalls this society will particularly affect those who are already marginalized and mainly forgotten, except when it serves some racist politicians' need. We see this often. We see how Hurricane Katrina was particularly dam- damaging to the poor in Black areas of New Orleans, and we are seeing it again with this pandemic. African Americans are already disproportionately represented when it comes to chronic diseases such as asthma, high blood pressure, and diabetes. There's not some gene which predisposes those with greater amounts of melatonin to have higher rates of these conditions. We live in a racist society where one's health is directly impacted by the neighborhood one lives in, the kind of jobs they have, the quality of their house that they stay in, access to healthy foods, access to primary care doctors, access to adequate medication, to say nothing about the high amount of daily stress one must endure to survive in our racist society. Chicago is one of the most unequal cities when it comes to this death gap. Uh, In Englewood, which is a predominantly poor and black neighborhood in Chicago, the average life expectancy is only 60. In Streeterville, a white and rich neighborhood just north of the downtown area, it's 90. Eight miles apart between these two two neighborhoods is a 30-year difference, and that is completely outrageous. There's already damning data coming about how COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting African Americans. The biotech firm Rubik's Life Sciences reviewed billing data. And African Americans with the standard symptoms of COVID-19 are less likely than others to receive testing despite having the exact same symptoms. In Nashville, Tennessee, they set up three drive-through testing centers in diverse neighborhoods, but never even started them up because they didn't have the tests or the protective equipment. In Memphis, most screening is occurring in white and well-off suburbs, not in majority black and lower-income neighborhoods. In Milwaukee, African-Americans only make up 26% of the population, but they are half of the cases and 80% of the deaths that have happened so far. It is the same racism that has dismissed in many politicians' minds the seriousness of this. It's just Chinese people in China dying. They don't care about them. The racism has also informed their response to COVID-19. Close the border with China. Uh, which only caused people to rush with U.S. passports back to this country, and then Trump calling it a Chinese virus. It's completely ridiculous to racialize a virus. It's literally RNA encased in protein, but this happens all the time. I'm part of a Facebook group of 12,000 nurses where I made a similar point, and the Trumpy trolls got very excited about my uh, my comments. They said, well, wait, I can't say Chinese food anymore? Is that racist? In one of my responses, I asked, well, what if reporters, every time they talked about a mass shooting, referred to them as the white male shooter? And someone said, well, we could only do that if that fit the description, which is a fair enough point, I guess. But what they didn't understand is that negative connotations with viruses, killer bees, sheep are, are ridiculous. They, and why does it always have to have some kind of racist, uh, racial description? There's ongoing blaming for China around uh, COVID-19. China covered it up. They're un- underreporting deaths. They were being sent personal uh, protective equipment by the U.S., and now that this country is in short supply, they're not supplying it back. And these are all just myths that are, well, some of them are actually true. I mean, there's no, there's no question the Chinese government uh, did not do things correctly, um, but there's a, you have to understand the difference between what a government does and what the people do. By that same logic, anyone with U.S. passport should actually never leave this country due to the decades of crimes this government has committed around the world. None of this is, new, is news to this audience. And as horrible it is, it is also not surprising. But I think the understanding the racial dynamics of this must shape our response as activists. Racism and xenophobia are constantly reached to uh, by those who run this country. Anyone who lived through the 9-11 attacks saw immediately how uh, it was exploited to stoke racism against Muslims and Arabs. The ugly part of racism, what makes it useful is that it's a simple answer. It provides an easy scapegoat, replacing reason with fear, solidarity with division. We must aggressively counter this narrative in every arena that we can. We must redirect people's real and understandable fears about COVID-19 towards the actual cause of this crisis domestically, which is privatized healthcare, as the other speakers have uh, have laid out. The incidences, as the incidences and death rates from COVID-19 climbs, we should expect a similar rise in racism, in particular racism against anyone who appears Asian. There, there's been a spike in those attacks already. A family of three in Texas, including small children, were attacked by someone with a knife. And those people are going to, have to fortunately lived, but they're going to have to live with the scars and the emotional uh, damage that has been done against them. The FBI supposedly is going to be uh, charging them with a hate crime, but that is not a solution uh, that's going to really get to the root of it. Andrew Yang, a presidential candidate, wrote an opinions piece in the Washington Post and stated that Asian-Americans need to embrace and show our Americanness, whatever that means, in ways that we never have before. We must show without a shadow of a doubt that we are Americans. But I think he should tell that to Donald Trump. He should tell that to FDR, who imprisoned uh, 120,000 Japanese people during World War II. He should tell that to the authors and the labor leaders who wrote and supported the Chinese Exclusion Act. Andrew Yang is also leading us down a dead-end path. You don't fight racism by waving the flag. We must be aware of and fight fight against the racism on both ends of this equation. We cannot separate it from what's happening. We have to raise this as an issue wherever we are active. I'm fortunate enough to be part of a union which takes fighting racism very seriously. And the CTU uh, solicited a short piece on the intersection of racism and COVID-19 and published it. I have a nurse coworker who also posted a meme that shows various heads of states and their accomplishments, with the final one being of China's Xi Jinping and the caption stating, I've destroyed your economy. And I messaged her personally and she took it down. She said she didn't consider the ingrained ignorance that most people in this country have. And I'm sure a big part of her sympathy to my, to my response was due to being a black woman herself and knowing exactly what the impact of racism is all about. But I think these are the kinds of interactions we have to have with our coworkers, our colleagues to talk about what's going on uh, underneath this. We must highlight the disproportionate effect that COVID-19 is having upon the poor, upon people of color, upon the undocumented. This crisis is exposing all the problems of capitalism, especially racism. So in our fights for protective personal equipment for nurses, relief for working people, healthcare for all, we should continue to link all of these issues together. The only silver lining of all of this is that many doors have been thrown open to these questions. Uh, And as socialists, we must continue to kick those doors down. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dennis. Uh, So our last presentation before we go to discussion, and I know people are eager for that, is going to be Jessica, a clinical social worker um, based in the Bay. So go ahead, Jessica.
5: Yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, I really appreciate the previous um, presentations. I work in public health in San Francisco, providing specialty mental health care to people living in public housing. Uh, My employer is UCSF, which is the largest healthcare provider in the Bay Area and is currently the primary provider for COVID-19 patients in the city. Um, The people that I work with are amongst the most vulnerable to COVID-19 and who survive on social security and disability benefits in what is the most expensive city um, to rent. Um, I wanna start by talking a bit about the mental health impacts of the pandemic um, and the economic crisis. Um, by saying first, we should expect a rapid increase in people experiencing depression, anxiety, and trauma. Um, More than 10 million people filed for unemployment in the last two weeks of March in the United States. Um, This figure will continue to grow um, and we will see a whole set of public sector layoffs um, coming after the new budgets are passed. Um, Not knowing how you will pay rent or how you will afford food is very traumatic. Um, And we're having to cope with this new normal while physically distancing ourselves from the people we care most about. Um, Human connection is just as important as food, water, and shelter. And when people are increasingly living alone and now sheltering in place, this lack of connection contributes to a variety of potential diseases and mental health conditions. Depression is the leading cause of disability globally, and we should expect this trend to continue as more people's lives are spent alone and afraid. Um, And I just want to put out there that I think what is required is physical distancing, not social isolation. And I think we have to really find ways um, to reach out and stay connected to people. Um, Those of us deemed essential workers must go through a daily risk assessment every time we leave our homes. Many of us will have already had coworkers die, family members infected and sick, and have little time to mourn their losses before we have to get back to work. All of these factors are likely to increase suicide rates that were at already at a high point in the United States before the pandemic. With no clear endpoint in sight, we are trapped in a state of hypervigilance, trying to prepare for the worst while not knowing what is gonna happen next. Needless to say, this is all very bad for our health and we will all have to work very hard to take care of our mentals. Um, and while it is certainly true that COVID-19 as a virus does not discriminate, The impacts of COVID-19 do, as other speakers have said. Those who are most vulnerable, marginalized, and oppressed will bear the greatest burden of disease. People who experience systematic racism, poverty, and mental illness are more likely to have compromised immune systems, be exposed to air pollution, and find themselves in institutions due to the lack of a social safety net that has left them isolated, marginalized, and disenfranchised. Right-wing politicians have suggested that either we save the economy or we save human beings. Um, And under capitalism, people who aren't able to sell their labor power are considered surplus because capitalists cannot find a way to exploit them profitably. Um, Millions of people fall into this category, whether it's due to aging, disability, incarceration, um, et cetera. And these institutional sites are now hotspots for the COVID-19 mortality and spread. Just as an example, my aunt, is an occupational therapist at a skilled nursing facility here in the Bay Area, where 10 other occupational therapists have tested positive. Um, And many of these sites, the infection rates are upwards of 50% amongst patients. Um, And her employer actually asked her and others to return to work within a week of testing positive. So there's very little regulations um, and uh, poor working place safety requirements. Um, The pandemic is putting a magnifying glass on how incompatible the capitalist system is with providing for human needs. Um, The government, the US government has shown that it is capable of printing trillions of dollars out of thin air to bail out corporations. Yet for the past 50 years, we've been told that funding for social welfare, public housing, and public education must be cut because they're a drain on our resources. As long as healthcare, housing, and food are commodities rather than universal rights, social inequality will continue to define who lives and who dies. Even countries with more robust social welfare states have struggled to respond to COVID-19, largely due to neoliberal cuts to welfare spending and a basic lack of planning or preparation for a pandemic. The manufactured scarcity of ventilators, safety equipment, and testing have led to nightmare situations across the globe where overwhelmed doctors are tasked with the ethics of rationing life-saving care. The Italian College of Anesthesia and Algisa resuscitation and intensive care develop formal guidelines on the ethics of rationing care. Informed by the principle of maximizing benefits for the largest number, the authors suggest, quote, the allocation, of cri- the allocation criteria need to guarantee that those patients with the highest chance of therapeutic success will retain access to intensive care. This means that those who need the most care will receive the least, and those who have experienced more hardship in their lives are deemed less likely to respond well to treatment. Disability rights groups have challenged this rationing gu- these rationing guidelines in p- states like Alabama, Kansas, Tennessee, and Washington that actually allow doctors to withhold care from people with disabilities. Alabama's emergency operations plan, for example, says that, quote, persons with severe mental retard- retardation are among those who may be poor candidates for life-saving care if there's a shortage of supplies like ventilators. Um, I think as some of the others. Have said it's a lot of going to be um, a very, very uh, hard crisis. Um, The silver lining to all of this is that without struggle, there is no progress. Um, People are being forced into struggle by this crisis. People are organizing rent strikes for the first time. We have already seen a number of successful wildcat strikes. People are finding creative ways to maintain their humanity amidst a pandemic by reclaiming their labor power to fight for demands like sick leave, hazard pay, workplace safety, which are demands that strengthen the entire working class. Class tensions have been sharpened since the last economic crisis. Um, and I think we can say we're in a better position as a left today than we were in 2008 and 9. The subsequent mass revolts have radicalized and organized millions of people. So we're not starting from scratch. A socialist movement is being revived and people are watching in real time how the capitalist system drives their lives into chaos again and again. Not to mention there's an entire generation of Zoomers, Generation Z, who will be further radicalized by the way capitalism is shaping their horizons. So what are some of the immediate questions and demands that are presented by this pandemic? Um, Obviously, what people mentioned, there's immediate demands around redistribution of resources that need to be implemented to stem the spread of COVID and hopefully prevent the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, People may have seen General Electric workers walked out and protested to demand that their idle factories be used to produce ventilators. In San Francisco, Socialist Supervisor Dean Preston started housing homeless residents in vacant hotel rooms out of his own pocket, um, but then put pressure on the Board of Supervisors to now contract with hotels to house healthcare workers and homeless people who have tested positive and need to quarantine. Um, And we should be demanding that our local governments expand this to house all people who need to shelter in place. Um, There are a ton of important legislative reforms that we need to win that people have mentioned, including sick leave, moratoriums on evictions, foreclosures, utility cutoffs, debt forgiveness, the suspension of ICE and CBP enforcement, permanent protections for Medicare and Social Security. Um, And all of this, I think, puts the question of labor strategy at the forefront. Um, Many of these reforms will be won within unionized workforces that can push for class-wide demands like hazard pay, sick leave, workplace protections. But our labor organizing is going to have to be focused also on organizing the unorganized. Um, As we've seen with Amazon and Instacart workers, there is a genuine desire um, to fight and to get organized. Um, Many of these workers will want to form unions. Many of them will need to continue to break the rules, challenge the authoritarianism of their bosses, and many of them will want to join a socialist movement. With shelter in place orders and physical distancing enforcement, we have to get creative in our tactics. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can abandon in-person protests altogether. Um, we have seen the successful press conferences or, organized by nurses and hospital workers that are able to get their voices out into national news and put pressure on politicians to respond. We've seen neighborhoods around hospitals showing solidarity with nurses and hospital workers. Um, and I think we have to think about like, is there a way to connect the car honking protests with the workplace actions, with neighborhood support? What happens when schools start in fall? How do we build solidarity between those on the front lines and those that are staying home? There's also the question of who will pay for the pandemic. Um, unfortunately, the stimulus bill, dubbed by Jeremy Scahill as a reverse Robin Hood, provides very little for the 99% and gives children trillions to corporations, um, which will contribute um, to greater inequality. Um, So we're going to have to fight for a people's bailout in opposition to this corporate giveaway, focusing on providing relief to those who need it most. Um, As I mentioned, in July, we're likely to see a lot of layoffs in the public sector. Budgets will be looking to reduce their workforces to only the most essential and productive. Um, So we'll continue to see austerity in many cities. Um, Oh, and we also have a presidential election in November. Um, So I think most people have accepted that the DNC has been successful in making sure Bernie will not be the presidential nominee. Um, And I think the pandemic will contribute to demoralization um, and lesser evilism as Bernie will likely support fighting against Trump, like the rest of the Democratic Party. However, we should still demand safe voting practices to allow the greatest participation possible and we should not let lesser evilism undermine the independent organizing efforts that will be necessary to survive this pandemic. In the Bay Area, some of the local election campaigns have shown a real opening for left politics. Um, These are opportunities to get explicitly socialist platforms into mass politics and build a link between formal politics and the social struggles and movements. Um, And I think the DSA is positioned to be able to take advantage of some of these opportunities in many cities. I think we also have to say that social reproduction will be a key site of struggle for the the future. Um, In California, Gavin Newsom is pumping public funds into recruiting nurse and med students into a statewide health corps. Um, As people have mentioned, the struggle around health care will have lasting effects on our ability to get Medicare for All and determine how prepared we are for the next crisis. Um, The restaurant industry has been effectively shut down and forced to transform itself to survive COVID. Um, And just an example, in San Francisco, there's been uh, what's called the San Francisco New Deal, where The tech industry is funding restaurants to provide meals to the most vulnerable, free meals to the most vulnerable in San Francisco, which I think, again, this shows what is possible, that it's possible to organize food differently to actually meet human needs. Um, We're already seeing drastic cuts in public transit due to shelter in place orders, and politicians will use this as an excuse to lay off workers, no doubt, and we have to continue to fight for the right to the city. In the fall, families and students are going to have to fight around the normalization of distance learning and online education as replacements for social pedagogy. Um, We've already seen the impact that teachers have had on mass consciousness and we're likely to see that wave continue through the healthcare and other public sectors. Capitalism is being exposed exposed once again as a system that benefits the 1% at the expense of the rest of us and the planet. There are many links between climate change and the pandemic. State subsidized agribusiness and factory farms and the encroachment of urbanization and industry into the wild create greater opportunities, opportunities for viruses to develop and spread from animals to humans. Um, Rosa Luxemburg popularized the slogan, Socialism or Barbarism, to describe the challenge for revolutionaries in a period of world war, colonization, and expansion of the extractive industries. Today, this slogan is still relevant for those who believe another world is possibly possible and who wanna be a part of dismantling the capitalist system. I guess lastly, I would just say the first step right now is to get organized, whether that's in your local DSA chapters, unions, neighborhood councils. I just joined the DSA in San Francisco because of the national response that DSA had around COVID-19. And I think, you know, the DSA is a national organization, but it needs to be democratized, democratized, diversified, and expand the bulk of its activities beyond the ballot box. Um, But I think we have a real uh, chance to get serious about Uh, mobilizing the people that we are organized, organizing the unorganized, and fighting for a better future. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jess. Um, And just a reminder, there is a Google form in the chat box. It will also go up on the Facebook event. This call is meant to be a first step. Uh, We can't do everything on this call, but we want to stay in touch um, and make sure that we're sharing information. I also want to share, before we get into discussion, New Politics Magazine has been collecting a list um, of social and political resources uh, around COVID-19. I've dropped a link in the chat. Um, So continue sharing resources and things like that in the chat and the Facebook group. Um, All right. so we've been collecting and um, kind of combining based on themes some of the questions that have been coming in. Uh, So the first question is going to be for uh, David. Um, and Phil's asking, the Great Depression of the 1930s only came to an end with World War II. What tools do capitalists and the major economies have to respond to the economic crisis? What demands should the left be making? And I'd also like to bring in some of uh, Charlie's ideas where he's pointing out that this crisis has the possibility or the likelihood of having many small businesses uh, shuttered and what we call the like petty bourgeoisie uh, pushed out. Um, and. Uh, they're susceptible to right-wing fascist ideas, how is that also going to play into this? So David, um, I'll give you a couple minutes. I know that's a lot there, um, but if you could share some thoughts.
1: Sure. Thank you, Emma. And thanks to all the presenters. Just terrific discussion. Look, I think the first thing we need to understand is that all of the measures they're taking right now, even those that violate the principles of the, of the market, are survival moves to restabilize capitalism. And therefore what we're talking about is breaking the principle of the market as the organizer and regulator of human life. But in terms of the system as a whole, they will continue to throw as much into the financial system as they feel is necessary to stabilize it. And they will engage in further heavily corporate weighted, as Jessica pointed out, stimulus packages, which will have some income supports like the $1,200 checks and that sort of thing for working class people, while the bulk of it goes to the banks, major corporations, the airlines, tourism, and so on. And so we're going to be seeing a scenario in which they roll out a variety of rescue and relief packages. And what we have to do is that tricky operation, but I think a lot of people get it, of saying essentially we are for bailing out people, not banks and corporations. And here is what real relief looks like. Secondly, we don't see these as one-off measures and that's going to be really really important for us so here in Houston where I am public transit is free right now that's been declared in other jurisdictions as well our argument has to be good not we oppose it because it's capitalists doing it it's that's good now we want to make this permanent Minnesota has created a fund in which undocumented people can access public relief and public support. They don't have to prove status whatsoever. Good, make that permanent, regularize everybody and so on. And so really what we're saying is, look, capitalism is going to keep intervening in a corporate biased way to restabilize the system. I happen to believe that their ammunition for doing this is much more depleted than they may believe. I mean, with interest rates at zero already, how do you drive them down further? Well, the only thing you can do is go negative, and Japan did that, where literally, you pay people to borrow money. You pay corporations to borrow from banks, and that can be done, but it has not revived the Japanese economy, which has been in a very, very similar trap. I think they're in a lot of trouble. And I think that has huge human consequences, but it also allows us to really drive home the arguments that we need a social system based on production for human need, not for private accumulation and profit. And so all the things that we've been talking about Medicare for all, housing for all, taking the hotels and housing the homeless. That's been done in Toronto. Free public transit, etc. Free food provision. All of those things can be cornerstones of a left program in which we have to say, however, this means breaking the power of the corporations, the elite and their state apparatuses. It means a social transformation from below. It's not gonna be accomplished by a patchwork of programs that the Republicans and the Democrats put together. Uh, And so I think interestingly, one of the things that's also gonna be really, really important for us is whatever happens with a presidential election that we've got to be making the case for the urgency of every form of extra parliamentary organizing possible. Final point on this. There are social movements that over the decades have learned how to organize under military dictatorships where public assembly was not possible. And they found ways to have coordinated activities Everything from pots and pans banging at, a, at appointed times to car caravans blowing their horns, blockading buildings with vehicles and so on. We're going to have to learn from those of our comrades who have been in situations where the use of public space has been denied for political protest and figure out what those lessons tell us about organizing in a pandemic.
0: Thank you, David. Um, Next question is for uh, Sherry. So C. Van Epps is asking and bringing up the important point that there's been so much misinformation, pseudoscience out there. It's hard to know who to trust. You have experts lining up behind Trump um, uh, who aren't saying things that are factual. So there's just uh, could you talk more about how we counter the widespread um, misinformation that's being circulated and then more broadly about the relationship between science and politics and what we're learning about it in this
2: crisis? Um, um, so that, that's not uh, uh, an easy answer. Um, I think you know, particularly given the situation where so many people are dependent on social media for their information, um, it's you know hard to reach people. But I think you know, certainly developing clear messages um, and uh, countering some of the um, lies that are out there are going to be very important. Um, in terms of science, I mean, I think there's. Uh, You know, as in every other sector, um, you know, people who are involved in the left side of uh, public health are, uh, you know, very actively organizing um, and trying to get messages out. So um, I think that sector, as with, you know, every other sector, is trying to figure out how to coherently, um, uh, you know, Develop clear messages and counter what's going on. I, I think, you know, we're going to face a um, a real challenge soon um, because we're going to come to the end of the you know enforced social distancing, and I, I think that's going to be a period that's going to pose. Uh, tremendous challenges, but also incredible opportunities for organizing. So, you know, in about a month or two or whenever it is, there's gonna be a lot of questions raised about how do we begin the process of, you know, returning to normal. And, you know, if we continue to respond using um, the logic that's come out of uh, Washington, we're going to see, uh, you know, just recurring epidemics and deaths. And so I, I think uh, very important over the next uh, month or two to really organize our forces and have a strategic response to what's going to occur once um, once this initial period of social distancing what's up.
0: Thank you, Sherry. Um, And we've had so many questions. I think it's really on a lot of people's minds of how do we organize in the time of social distancing. Uh, David had great ideas about looking towards other places when people were also um, unable to meet in the sort of protests that we're used to. Um, And people have someone asked the question about um, the prospects for a May 1st strike. Uh, Another person, I believe, Eli, brought up um, the idea of a rent strike. Um, I know for myself, I've been on de facto rent strike because I couldn't pay rent April 1st. Like, what is happening? How, where, in which places is this being organized? Um, I'm going to um, unmute all of our speakers. I don't know who would like to speak to this first. Uh, Perhaps one of the, uh, oops, uh, one of the uh, union activists on here. So, Dennis, you're unmuted. Sean um, and Jess, I'm going to mute as well. Would any of you like to take up the question of um, how how we, what kinds of tactics are available to us?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I could just say briefly, I mean, I think David mentioned just just now a few of them. I think that's a really important point. I think all of us in the US have a lot to learn, you know, from, from comrades who have been, uh, those circumstances um and so i'd be really curious to figure out how that could actually happen concretely. um but i think some of the things that we you know started to experiment with are both inside and outside of the workplace actions so i think yeah the 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 um opportunities for workplace action right now are profound especially right now like especially in this Specific moment because I think the challenges after, you know, in a month's time when you know the recession slash depression is going to bear its full weight on um, disciplining the working class uh, in the workplace are going to be really profound. Um, but um, I think right now there's incredible amounts of leverage um, that people have, and we have to that we have to see that as a window of opportunity for workplace action, especially in logistics and quote-unquote essential work. Um, it's, you, it's very difficult to do economic workplace actions in healthcare for obvious reasons. Um, but, you know, and so that's why we chose to do, you know, a more public action. Um, but I think specific ones are, you know, I think David mentioned like the car caravans. We've I think there on on Monday there's an action that's going to be in Harlem Hospital. There's talk of maybe teachers uh from the uh, from the Moore caucus doing like a car caravan solidarity thing around harlem hospital um, there's um, but but also very you know we have the power of blockades right now, so you could do socially distance blockades with cars but also with humans you know, having ropes or pieces of fabric um, tied together uh, at eight feet length, so you're socially just dis- six to eight feet length, so you're socially distanced. You can surround things, you can block off things. You can, with with small numbers of people, you can safely do very profound actions and 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 achieve very widespread recognition and very rapid spread of your ideas and your tactics. Um, there's also, I think, within geographic organizing, uh, like in buildings, uh, apartment buildings in New York. This is a particular opportunity, uh, doing things like banner drops or coordinated noise-based activities. There's already a very has been spontaneously organized the sort of hour for healthcare workers or the minute, you know, the seven o'clock for healthcare workers in New York. Different neighborhoods are doing different times. Um, that's already happening. So imagine if there were banner drops with particular demands around housing, around rent, um, around um, healthcare workers, like politicizing those, those already organized actions. There's, uh, I think that can be very effective, especially in a highly dense place like New York. Um, so yeah, I think there's lots of opportunities and there's lots and lots of willingness. People are looking for things to do um, they want to be, we have to be ruthless about safety, but people obviously um, are, are, are looking for that outlet and are feeling that need for the profound changes that are necessary.
0: Thank you, Sean. Um, Dennis or Jess, did you want to come back on that? Yeah,
5: this is Jessica. I just want to respond to I think some of another part of the question that came out in the chat which is sort of about the question of mutual aid and the question of sort of to what degree some of these efforts around survival can actually transform towards um, really building the capacity of workers to fight back collectively Um, and there's a long history of this in the United States and many other countries but I think it's worth just mentioning like the example of the rent strike, there's like dozens of examples in history of rent strikes happening. Um, The most famous uh, one in New York in 1907, Um, but there's been a a history of rent strikes that have been about actually, um, not merely not paying rent for one particular month, but about actually organizing people who are um, predominantly living in poverty, people who are living paycheck to paycheck, and challenging um, I think the real estate capitalists, the the landlords um, in a collective manner. And I think right now we definitely have like morality on our side in a way of like, people know what it feels like to not be getting a paycheck right now, to not be able to pay rent. Um, And there's a certain political cost, I think for politicians right now that we have to figure out how how to take on them, right? So we know that politicians, are always gonna side with the landlords. But right now, I think there are opportunities for people to organize in a way that actually puts pressure on moratoriums around evictions, around utility cutoffs and things like that. Um, I also think that these types of organizing in neighborhoods and communities can uh, build the capacity of the working class to fight in future struggles and to get organized together. Um, I think there's a big question around getting resources to um, to both workers and uh, on the front lines, um, so like things like um, I know that there've been groups of people who've demanded that their um, employers um, redistribute masks towards healthcare workers, and there's been uh, it's been it's been workers who have been demanding this from their bosses to to either fund. Um, the provision of PPE towards healthcare workers or physically find those masks and deliver them to hospitals. So I think there's a lot of opportunities around um, the question of mutual aid and how that can transform into larger political organizing that we shouldn't be dismissive of just because it might be something we're not, don't have as much experience um, doing. And just to say one thing in San Francisco, there's been uh, the DSA in San Francisco has been organizing the unorganized, and they just recently had a huge campaign around organizing tartine um, workers, which is one of the most famous bakeries in San Francisco. It's a very large employer, um, and they unionized um, and joined ILWU, and now they're facing you know, the, the potential being laid off. And so there's an effort by DSA to make sure that those organizers in workplaces are able to continue to organize their workplaces and continue to um, expand the unionization Um, in in various uh, industries. So I think those types of things are concrete things that we can start to figure out and start to put together the people that know um, how to get involved in that kind of work.
0: Thank you, Jess. Uh, So we have a question from Ashley um, and they say one of the greatest and rarely acknowledged problems in the stimulus relief for workers is the exclusion of undocumented immigrants from the bill. How can we make this a central demand of COVID organizing. I think related to people have raised in the chat the issue of jails, concentration camps, detention centers. Um, so I uh, uh, any of our speakers could come back on this. I'm wondering, Dennis, if you'd like to uh, say something about this.
4: Sure, I mean, I think that there's no question that everything in our society is being questioned uh regardless of the arena and there's actors there have been activists in every one of those areas and i think it's ac- incumbent upon those activists to be linking their struggles together to the overall situation that we're all suffering under we need to push that envelope as much as possible i mean i think everyone's asking what work is that actually matters to society uh, is is important right now? Why is it that a grocery worker, a delivery driver, a cook, or custodian in a school, their work is actually important and it benefits society? The the what Jeff Bezos does is not important to society, but his wealth and uh, profits do come from somewhere, and we need to fight around that. This morning, um, Kirsten and I went down to a protest at Amazon where they set up a picket line right in the morning um, before the trucks went out, and it brought in uh, probably close to 100 cars to, to join in that process. So there's certainly things that, that can be done uh, in this current period. For many of us now, our labor power has been put on hold. And we, when we go back to work, we will have to be organizing around demands. They've been dumping money into Wall Street, and a few pennies are going to be falling into our pockets over the next couple of weeks. But the bosses are going to try and recruit that. The politicians will try and get back Whatever crumbs they've they've uh, let's fall off the table to working people. Um, the CTU, to their credit, put an excellent letter out in the local newspaper, and I think uh, talking about how all the important work that happens in society needs to be needs to be good-paying jobs. The unions, in many ways, are leading the way. Uh, around this and we will continue to do so. We see this with nurses. Um, my boss in the ER, one of the last shifts I worked, she was pleading with us to do some bullshit paperwork that we were supposed to get done. And then in mid sense she said, well, you know what? I really can't discipline you if you don't complete it. I need every one of you. I can't hold any of you accountable. So just please do it. She just basically begged us. Um, and nurses, I think out of this who aren't already unions, unions are going to want to join unions. Um, I think that the left is small in this country it's not as it's not as big or embedded in workplaces as it needs to be but when the when workers start to move in the society which they absolutely will have to um, we're gonna we're gonna have to be part of that and the left will grow out of it um, and then the importance of political outlooks is also going to be an important part of that I think some people are looking to the not a very small group of people looking to what happened in China is somehow some kind of model like oh, China was so great the government shut down the the, the, the the factories and, and schools early on. But I think that's also something that we have to say that's not a model. It's not, not something we should look into as socialists um, as, as sort of a workers-run society. So I think everyone should join a struggle wherever they can. Get organized, formulate demands, be bold. There's nothing uh, that we shouldn't be asking for right now.
0: Thank you, Dennis. Um, so I have... Um... Uh, I'm going to try to combine these two questions around uh, for David. So, David, I will unmute you. Uh, One is from uh, Lee, and she's asking what can be generalized about the global South debt crisis and what dynamics you may see emerging. Um, And relatedly, Erin asked earlier if there's anything to be learned or deduced um, from the different economic responses um, in different countries, so the U.S., Germany, Denmark, et cetera, and different trade blocks uh, to the crisis. Go ahead, David.
1: Okay, thank you. Well, starting with the global south. Even early days are terrifying, to tell you the truth. Since January 21st, $95 billion in capital has fled, so called emerging markets. Now, you're talking in other words, about a classic period in which capital globally is rushing to security. And that means that they're just taking speculative profits out of South Africa, taking speculative profits out of Nigeria, taking them out of Ecuador and so on, and bringing them home to wherever they consider the safest places. And of course, as you know, this can be offshore places that uh, they get to disguise them and so on. When you go back to the point I made earlier that there are 48 countries in the world that were already spending more on their international debt payments than they were on healthcare, you can see how devastating this is going to be. But also the importance of figuring out what solidarity looks like with movements there. In Myanmar, for instance, a series of worker protests have started about the fact that corporations within the supply chains are just fleeing. There's a million workers in Bangladesh in the garment industry who are already out of work. So we're gonna be also facing the very practical questions of how we build that solidarity. But there are some basic organizing demands. And what we have to be clear about is when we say eliminate student debt, when we say, rent payment moratoriums, and so on, we have to be very careful that our horizons are not purely national. We should be calling for debt abolition globally. And as crazy as that might have sounded at one point, when you tell people the story about Haiti, for instance, and the hundreds of millions of dollars that could be directed to the healthcare system immediately, if debts were abolished, it actually has an impact. So that's the first thing, it's gonna be, they're gonna be hit very, very hard. And yet at the same time, there are some things that we can do as as part of these campaigns. And obviously we have to listen to every concrete request for uh, support that's coming. On the different types of interventions, I think one of the ones that we really wanna push hard in the U.S is the way in which both Ireland and Spain intervened to take private hospitals under public regulation. And just make the point, if you can have a defense production agreement like Sean was talking about, where GM can be ordered to produce ventilators, for instance, you can similarly have executive orders that immediately bring under public control, private hospitals. It can be done. There's nothing that prevents it except the political will uh, to do it. So I think that's gonna be really, really uh, significant as well in terms of the, the different types of responses. The other point I wanna make, which relates to something that has run through the questions and discussion is we need to be thinking about those frontline workers right now and the kinds of responses they're going to be having exiting the crisis. Because one of the things which is really significant about the workers who drove many of the mass shifts to the left at the end of the second world war is that returning soldiers were crucial. They brought about the election to the first labor government in 1945 in Britain. They were absolutely central to the formation of left governments of communists and socialists in France and Italy in 1945 and so on. Why? Because the soldiers had been on the unemployment lines, told they never mattered. Then they went and they put their lives on the line and they came back and they said, we're never going back to the way it was. And I think we're going to see a very similar set of reactions among healthcare workers grocery store workers, warehouse workers, delivery workers, and so on. And all of the things that other speakers are talking about in terms of unionization and openness to being part of building movements and organizations of the left, the frontline workers whose lives were on the line are not readily gonna go back to the way it was beforehand any more than the returning soldiers did in 1945 who were part of a huge wave of popular radicalism. And so I think part of what we're doing now and all the things that different speakers are describing about the on the ground activism right now, wildcats and protests and speakouts and so on, this is the groundwork for a huge upsurge of organizing and activism as we start to exit the crisis. And we need to see that work today as fitting into that kind of larger strategic perspective.
0: Thank you, David. Um, uh, I want to just make a quick plug for Rampant Magazine, which is an exciting new magazine based in Chicago. They're one of the sponsors of this call today. I've dropped a link. It's rampantmag.com. You can sign up for their newsletter um, and they publish excellent revolutionary analysis of politics, including mech Metsch, lots of stuff on the COVID crisis. Uh, So the next question is for Sherry. Sherry, I'll unmute you. TJ is asking, how can we keep track of the response of science itself at this time and ensure its accountability? So for example, Hundreds of clinical trials have been launched in many countries within record time. Um, so while an urgent response is necessary, there's a danger that due diligence procedures may not be followed um, in terms of getting informed consent, et cetera. I think someone in the chat posted about potential like clinical testing of vaccines in the DRC. There's many, um, lots to consider here in terms of where medications are tested and who they're tested on. Um, so how should we monitor th- these activities and any other thoughts you have on that? Go ahead, Sherry.
2: Um, well, I think you're right that there's been you know, tremendous amount of uh, research going on uh, for all sorts of reasons. So I-, I think there's a couple of issues. One is uh, the ones you raised in terms of assuring that the research that's done is ethical and, um, you know follows the 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 rules that are needed. but I also think that what's uh, really important is what research is going to get funded and to what end. And so in thinking about how we're going to come out of this and what new systems of personal protective equipment are going to be available and new ways of producing uh, screening tests and you know et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there can be research that's directed towards making sure that those solutions are directed into the um, private corporations, and uh, you know, as we've seen from this debacle, uh, that's not going to work. So I, I think uh, you know, there's all of the ethical issues in terms of research, but I think um, as important is making sure, like. How is the money spent? What is the direction of it? What's the end goal of this research? Is it going towards developing the kinds of um, democratic, equal, nationalized systems, or is it just going into corporations to try and reinforce their system, which we've been shown, you know, which has been shown to be completely uh, unable to respond to this crisis?
0: Thank you, Sherry. Um, I want to just point out that Natalia had posted something in the chat. They're a laid-off restaurant worker involved in launching an industry-wide campaign. So if you or others are looking to plug in, I'm going to repost that um, here. Uh, So we're we're coming up on the hour soon. There's been... um, a bunch of questions that touch on uh, the broad political response to this crisis, the mainstream political response, and then specifically Bernie's uh, response and prospects in this moment. Alessandro asked specifically, uh, as the most visible social Democrats in Congress, AOC, Sanders, etc., voted on the relief bill, which is a large bailout to corporate America, um, how can we critique this while being sympathetic to the strong action needed? Um, uh, I'm going. Uh, Jess, would you like to come back on this?
5: Yeah, I guess just briefly. I think we have to be honest about it. I think we have to hold politicians to account when they vote for bills that are bad for working people, especially those that are the biggest um, that that consider themselves the biggest advocates for working people. Um, and we have to reject the idea that it's a choice of nothing or this corporate bailout, that those are the only two choices, and actually recognize that I think that the, it was actually the pressure was on the federal government to pass a stimulus bill, and there could have been much more, I think, uh, opposition and um, possibly a better bill, but I think, there, I think it's important that, that we hear that politicians do actually oppose it, rather than saying, well, we have to vote for it because otherwise we get nothing for people. Um, I think that is something that we have to say. And it just goes back to the idea that we really do need um, to have a party uh, that is to the left of the Democrats, a party that can represent the interests of working people. Um, I think you see right now how different it is in places like Ireland um, and other places where the left has its own party and is able to actually push for some reforms that people thought weren't possible. Um, prior to the pandemic, or that people have been fighting for, and that now they have the leverage. But I think the biggest thing is that we have to actually reject the idea that all we can get is crumbs, that everything that we get has to come with strings attached. Um, And so I think that again, I think puts the pressure on a left to establish independence from the parties that are connected to uh, the ruling class in such um, a direct way.
0: Thank you, Jess. And I think as we wind down for this call, I want to give the speakers a chance to come back with just some final thoughts. Um, And uh, if you have any thoughts, especially on this question of um, the connection between calls for state intervention um, and the broader fight for socialism and how does this fit in? We see a lot of mutual aid efforts um, that are cropping up. So how do we connect that to um, the larger fight for socialism? So thank you, Jess. I'll go. I'll, I'll just call on the speakers in reverse order. Um, so uh, Dennis. Oh, let
4: me unmute you. Let me try and get myself. There you go. Here. We can
0: hear you. Yeah. yeah, Sorry. That was.
4: No, it's fine. I mean, I think that the lessons that we're gonna learn through this crisis um, are gonna be invaluable. I saw this um, cartoon that probably other people have seen uh, on social media. It's these two um, people in white coats, I'm assuming they're scientists, are looking this way at at the curve, you know, the COVID curve. And behind them is this huge climate change curve. And the two scientists are saying to each other, well, I'm gonna be so glad when this crisis gets over, and I think the thing is, is that um, we're we're in we're we're gonna we're in for bigger challenges and bigger struggles ahead of us. And everything that people learn through this struggle is going to be an important thing to take us take us forward. Millions are becoming radicalized by their experience from going through this. They're drawing conclusions about healthcare is a right. Capitalism is the root of these problems. Racism must be destroyed. Workers have the power to change society because we're the ones who make everything work. But it doesn't mean that it's all gonna be up, up, and away for the left either. There's lots of challenges that we're still gonna have to um, figure out. Obviously, a lot of politicians are looking completely ridiculous and outrageous, uh, and others are looking competent. For example, J.V. Pritzker in Illinois, uh, who would have thought that this billionaire would be more effective at trying to manage the resources of the state in a better way than other governors. You overruled Lori Lightfoot, uh, the mayor in Chicago, for example, of correctly closing the schools. So some things are going to become less controversial. Um, other questions will remain big things for the left to provide a clearly on. And again, it gets back to the importance for us to be embedding ourselves, participating, attempting to lead where possible, all the struggles that are going to come up. Out of this crisis, because it's incumbent upon us to rebuild a working left that that the rising workers' movement, I think, will undoubtedly uh, precipitate.
0: Thank you, Dennis. Uh, Sean.
3: Yeah, I think that um, you know, following from what Dennis just said, I think that um, I think one message that we have to be crystal clear with folks. I think there's an one thing that there's an incredible desire for in. Uh, broadly speaking, in US society and world society as a whole, is waiting for the day when we can go back to normal. And I think that um, we all know, we all have a grasp on the fact that things aren't never gonna be back to normal um, from this point forward. Mm-hmm. Maybe not never, but um, but things are not going back to normal. That, and, and that we shouldn't, and that we should flip that, and that we should say they, they, they shouldn't go back to normal as we understand it, you know, from the perspective of how things got us into this mess in the place. So I think starting to have those conversations with that framework, I think will be useful for us at a very, you know, immediate level. Um, I think in terms of big political questions that are emerging on the left, I think the mutual aid question versus like state intervention or alongside state intervention question is a big one that's out there. There are huge swaths of the socialist movement within DSA and, and in other places who uh, gravitate to the kind of anarcho syndicalist, or you know, we saw this in Occupy, and they have their 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 currents now, where there's just a lot of emphasis that we can sort of organize the role of the state ourselves, and that um, that that should be a key strategic plank moving forward. Um, I think that while we want to you know empathize with the general desire for people to help out concretely right now and the whole solidarity, not charity model of, of, of mutual aid and of, and of you know, people's desire to, to help and address immediate needs. I think politically we have to cut against that and, and raise people's expectations that we absolutely can and need to demand clear cut things from our government and that that um, can be articulated and pushed for with mass direct action um so i think the need to to pull against the apolitical nature of some of that and to politicize it i think is is really crucial and then uh a third point is that i think there's going to be all kinds of responses uh from the state from the ruling class there's going to be all kinds of political um uh ideas that develop you know uh I think Trump making references to how shameful that it is that we have so many uninsured people, you know, and, you know, the idea that he might actually deliver Medicare for all, you know, is, is, is crazy, but, you know, I mean, you could imagine Trump turning into a little bit of a Peronist right now um, in the sense of, you know, a, a nationalist authoritarian figure that's delivering you know, mass state-based intervention into people's lives for political popularity. So we have to be prepared for that as a left and we have to have a response to that. And internationalism, like David said, is I think is key on that front. Um, anti-racism and anti, you know, uh, and, and um, you know, supporting immigrant workers, supporting the most vulnerable is, is key on that front. Um, also, of course, in the left, we're going to see you know, the theoretical articulation of Neo-Keynesianism. Um, and I think that that is also a longer term question that we're gonna have to grapple with in terms of what is actually possible right now. We, that, that's different from what we demand. It's different, like we will demand and we need to demand immediately things like debt relief, global debt relief, Medicare for all, massive state intervention into the economy. But we also at the same time, have to develop a politics that this is not going to resolve the contradictions of of capitalism and we need to start to think about ways to build politics and consciousness in the long term for that fight um, and, and on that note I think the last thing I wanted to say was on the on the question of the elections and Bernie and the vote and failures I think that like the squad and Bernie voting for the the bailout package is a little bit Leans too much towards being a little bit of a red herring. I don't think that's the key failure of, you know, the Bernie project or, or the, the question of how those forces are operating on the left right now. I think more of the problem is that, you know, Bernie AOC and others aren't playing enough of a role in organizing and being the organizers in chief as they promised to be. Um, I think that they could be doing more to organize grassroots forces to make these demands. And I wish that they were using more of their national platforms to encourage the effort, encourage those efforts. I think if, to what extent we have a relationship with those forces of the left that are, and we do have those relationships. I think that's probably that, I, 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 don't, I don't think the key question is, you know, uh, what I would call a more gotcha, um approach which is you know just sort of point out oh well you know bernie's vote that's an accommodation that's a you know we can say that in the right context but the broader message our message to the to the left as a whole is we need to be building social movements these people could help do that and we should be pressuring them and trying to win them win those forces on the left and even win those particular people to doing that in a more effective way because that's what's going to strengthen. The left more broadly and make us more fight ready in this moment.
0: Thank you, Sean.
2: Uh, Sherry? Hi. Um, so I, I know we're running out of time and I absolutely agree with everything that the people before me have said. Um, and I just want to follow up on uh you know, a couple of things. I I, I think I wanna really emphasize to people the importance of the next, uh, you know, two to four months. Um, You know, we've all been uh, social distancing, hopefully the peak is gonna come down. But, uh, you know, if people just think like, this was a tornado and it's over, and now I'm going back to life as normal, it's not gonna happen. And, um, and so I think we're very, very, very quickly going to be facing um, some critical questions about how we respond, you know, not in six months, but in two months. And so I think, um, you know, talking about these issues of mutual aid, that's just, I mean, that's great, but that's not the, the level of response we're going to need. And so all of the things we've been talking about on this call of social activism um, and putting pressure on politicians to uh, come up with a response and a direction forward out of this that um, is gonna be uh, more successful than their response the first time around. And uh, as everyone said, uh, there's been so many lessons learned about how our systems didn't function that I think for the first time uh, in a long time, Uh, masses of people, they're just afraid for their lives and um, have learned a lot of lessons. And so I think we need to be strategic, but we need to be really organized because this is going to move very quickly. And um, how we respond uh, as a group is going to be set the course for what the future of this looks like and how much Trump is able to to, um, become very, Repressive and dictatorial in his response versus having social movements that um, carry the force of of people's reaction to this. That's it.
0: Thank you, Sherry. And finally, David.
1: Okay, well, let me again thank Emma and all my co presenters. I, I think it really has been a rich discussion. One key point that I'll try to then just riff off of a little bit, and it is that, yes, we have to put demands on the state because the state has capacities that none of us working in a single locality has. But we also always have to highlight the fact that this is a capitalist state. That this is one that tries in authoritarian ways to use every demand on it to enhance its powers for the purposes of the ruling class. And so everything we win is something we force upon the state. And the only guarantee that they don't ultimately either completely betray us and abandon us, or that they don't roll it back at their first convenience is the building of counterpower, And that's why those initiatives from the base, from the grassroots have been so important. The women in Los Angeles who seized homes and said, we dare you to evict us during a pandemic, for instance. That's huge, that self activity, the forcing, governmental authorities to condone housing the homeless by way of direct action. The same thing goes for the general electric workers who were mentioned earlier, who walked out saying we want to produce ventilators. They were imposing social need upon capital. And it's going to go across the board. The Detroit bus drivers who eventually forced free fares and so on. But coming out of this, we need to imagine all of these sorts of base building efforts, the creating, creation of counterpower on broader scale. So could it be possible, for instance, as we move forward in the months ahead, to imagine the creation of a New York City Health Workers Council, that actually does its own inventories and assessments of needs, and the PPEs and ventilators and hospital beds and so on, and produces its own independent worker-driven reports on healthcare that meets public need, not profit, and so on uh, for New York City. And I just use that as a single example. Those are the kinds of things in which we start to say working class planning, working class coordination and organization is the alternative that we're projecting. And so it's translating into very pragmatic, practical terms that resonate with people, the idea of enhancing and building up working class power.
0: Thank you, David. Um, thank you to all the presenters, all of you for joining for your questions and participation. We are going to uh, get all the announcements from the chat, all the announcements from our sponsors, put them in a pretty email, and then send them to you if you fill out this form. So in lieu of me saying many announcements, we're going to put them in an email and send them to you. So please, please fill out this Google form. Um, and. Uh, that's how we're going to stay connected and and connect lots of what's already happening and see what potential there is for more to happen. Um, So um, on that note, I want to thank you all. Everyone, please take care, be well, um, and know that
5: we're in this together. So solidarity.